0: Hello there and welcome. My name is Tom Kenny. I'm the editor of Mix Magazine. We're here today in the Don Pearson Theater at Meijer Sound headquarters in Berkeley, California. And we're here with the company founders, John and Helen Meyer, celebrating uh, their 50th anniversary of meeting, their 50th anniversary of music, of love, of sound, of a whole lot of stuff. So let's start off right where it all began, if we could, John and Helen, with uh, the Summer of Love in San Francisco and a first date at a hi-fi shop. It's been told before. Too good a story. Well, can you, Helen? Do you want to start and tell us what <laughs> sure. that day?
1: Thank you, Tom. Thanks for uh, having us here. Uh, well, yeah, fifty years ago. It was fifty years ago. Maybe today. I don't know. Um, but uh, a long time ago, from our point of view, although the time has flown, and uh, John and I were neighbors, and he, uh, he and I started to do things together, and uh, we became romantic. And he invited me down to the hi-fi store that he worked at. That was Berkeley Custom Electronics. Um, so I could hear sound the way it really should be heard. He was appalled when he first saw what I was listening to in my little apartment, a little, you know, record player. And um, I used to hold the records w- the wrong way, putting fingerprints on the records. And, you know, he said, no, come down to the hi-fi store and we'll listen to Sergeant Pepper's. And uh, it was after hours. And we turned on the music and we had a great
0: time. John, you, that's the way you wanted to hear it at that time?
2: Well, I was working, uh, I grew up in radio and FM radio. So I was always kind of immersed in high quality sound. FM radio it, growing up in the 50s and the 60s was always very, very high tech. FM is a 10 times order magnitude lower distortion uh, at KPFA than, say, records were at that time. So it was, it was live broadcast and things like that were very high tech. So it was kind of my background. And then I started working at hi fi stores because FM is hi fi. But someone asked me the other day what hi fi was. And so, so what it was a time when. Uh, you know, speakers were really getting good, and amplifiers were getting good, and we we're going from tubes to transistor amplifiers, and everybody listened. And phono cartridges were improving, and tape was coming out, and uh, it was the kind of pre-digital era. So lots of listening, lots of uh, tests, and so the Hi-Fi Star is working. It had a lot of variety of loudspeakers, everything from clips horns to electrostatic speakers, KLH nines, and. AR speakers, lots of variety of speakers, so people could, uh, you know, kind of like choose with the music which ones they like. Different speakers at that time worked better, say, for some kind of music than others. But Sgt. Pepper's needs to be played powerfully. It's allowed, this era was starting to develop like very powerful sounds, not necessarily shouldn't have uh, not all of it had to hurt you, like some of the people thought, but it should be powerful and overwhelming and engaging. I mean, I've it was heard.
1: like true immersive sound. It was yeah. like the first time I felt totally immersed yeah. in the sound, and I like loud sound. Yeah, when it's immersive and beautiful, and it just envelops. Not you. distorted.
2: So it, we, we, right away, we were learning that distorted sound or you know, things like that were much more painful and tiring but like just powerful i mean you can be close to a drum they're quite powerful a real drum a kick drum system is a quite powerful thing you know duplicating that back at the levels at that time took quite a bit of of work to get it back like live drums and live instruments and things like that so i wanted to hear that like what it could be like hearing what this band when all the trouble. To create, they brought equipment over from London—Neumann equipment and different kinds of recording equipment—to record this thing at very high tech. So the Beatles weren't just wonderful writers and, and developing music, but they also were very technologically uh, oriented toward building the best possible, best microphones, best uh, instrument, and best equipment, so that this this record was really a. Um, in our
0: world, uh, was a milestone, so, and it deserves to be played back properly. too. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because that time, if it's 1967, the music scene in the Bay Area is very progressive, very innovative, very experimental. Um, in the technology scene, you have a lot. Of, you know, you're coming out of the Ampex days. These are sort of both merging, and the two of you meet there in 1967. I mean, what was your music? What was your music scene? And were you playing? Were you just were you a big fan turning on the radio? What was it like?
1: I was just a total fan. Yeah, I loved all the pop music. I loved the Beatles. I loved Donovan. I loved... uh Um, I loved all those artists. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Janice and uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors, yeah, Yeah. and uh, I loved it all. It was different,
2: you know, it was like, there was nothing like that, see, I mean, it's hard for, it's like Bob Dylan said in an interview, it's like someone asked him, what was it like then? He says, I can't tell you, you weren't there. (laughs) But uh, it's not fair, I mean, that's Dylan, that's what he says, I mean, he just wants to, uh, and it's true, it's hard to, to talk like what it was really like, but. It was, there wasn't anything like that. The, it was a really big paradigm shift from the music before that, which was more. Uh, folk songs and and things this was like I mean the doors I mean we never heard anything like that I mean or um, soul music different things going on this was just a whole new explosion of, of sound dimensions that just
1: didn't exist classically or in jazz it was but, and there was also the live music that was going on in the area which was really fun it was just a whole experience being able to go to the you know the the clubs in the city and experiencing the whole way of you know, being there. There's an energy.
0: I mean, to me, in a in a parallel, when I started to think about this, uh, we lived through two Silicon Valley revolutions right now, really, if you've been in the Bay Area a while. Um, and that's sort of infancy, you know, you feel like you're in the infancy in a little bit, I guess. Would that, would that be right in terms of technology and such, John? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, Avalon was opening up. It was, uh, both light shows, kind of the, the blobby, strange light things and music, and the band was on the same floor that you were on. There was no stage. It was just totally immersive, new thinking completely uh, environment, which in the 66, 67, 68, it didn't start to change to about 69 where it started to get back more traditional, back to stages and things. But in those first few years, it was really, everyone was trying to do something really different. And and uh, that's why it was so exciting, you know, before the producers came back in and tried to make it into organized money, you know, and, you know, kind of like organize the whole thing. It was all totally ad hoc at that time. No one was looking to make money they were looking at to, to create experiences
0: what's well, interesting because we've always well mixed we've always covered studio and stage meaning that a lot performance and and recordings are sort of part and parcel of an artist and, and such um both going on at this time so yeah, it's, it, to me it's interesting you're in a hi-fi store and yet you're you're ex, you're experiencing your leap sort of when steve miller walks in if you if, if you could please talk about that because you're, you're connecting a bit of two worlds here at this point i feel yeah. like
2: Steve, like he says, he heard about us because he just did some interviews and it reminded me what happened from his perspective. <laughs> uh, but they heard about us, uh, this hi-fi store in Berkeley. We were really quite famous because we we were doing, um, we we're the only ones in the area doing anything like really trying to not just sell little hi-fi speakers to students, but really immersive, serious experiences that could recreate the sound in your living room. And Steve came in to... Uh, heard about us and we kind of started talking to him about doing this you know sound I think we put some stuff together for him Clipshorn, the scholars things like that started doing stuff in these shows in San Francisco and stuff and then uh, kind of like you know and I, I he reminded me I rebuilt his guitar uh, speaker <laughs> thing I forgot about that that uh, you know he wanted he won but he, Steve was like both at the same time it was like hi-fi but at the same time he wanted to He had a crystal microphone that he bought from Radio Shack that he would play his harmonica into, and, of course, that thing would be destroyed from the um, saliva and the water going into the crystal microphone, so it would... uh, Degenerate, but he liked that sound as it was kind of crunching and dying. He called it the dying sound. <laughs> he wanted me to see if I could do that electronically. Could we create? Is there some way that we could? So he either had to go buy hundreds of these things because they die every single performance, you know. So he wanted to, but he was always interested. Could we capture that sound? So it wasn't like a lot of people think that we were on a pure path. We're trying. No, we're trying to create things with this path. You know, the reason we like. Uh, to have control over it, so we can duplicate it. This doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have to have depth and complexity, or, or like um, in the. But we're trying to make it last more than a single performance. I mean, you know, so that you it, it wouldn't have this variation. Some of the crystal microphones behave differently than other. Which one? And somebody liked better. So capturing that so we started to record these things to see if this could be captured hard to do at that time uh, same thing with speakers a lot of the bands like he liked it when his little cheap jensen speakers burned up in his guitar
0: you know have that some, kind of some like a fisher price piano yeah, you'd, you'd have, yeah. You know? yeah. but like how to do yeah.
2: that in some <laughs> in, in a way that doesn't just mean you're killing it uh, each yeah. performance so we wanted to kind of like Uh, see if we could use electronics. And at that time, there wasn't any digital. So we had to kind of figure out how to do this uh, to try and take it so that it wasn't just, you know, kind of going from the kind of physical way of this kind of, to something more uh, intellectual some way. Digital is starting to do that now with the ability to make one sound like one guitar sound like another one,
0: you know, that's a... It's interesting because at that time, I mean, there's one way to recreate a performance and there's another to recreate an experience. And at that time, those two are sort of going hand in hand. I mean, right. creating a sound in a crystal is an experience.
2: I mean, we had problems with uh, the kind of speakers. They were they, see, some of the speakers were for guitars were meant to be distorted so they could create a guitar sound but then they wouldn't sound good for vocals Mm -hmm. so what you really want to do is have a speaker that sounds good for vocals or piano something really clean and then get that guitar sound electronically rather than having to have a different speaker for every kind of sound which is what was evolving it makes it unpractical you know for for the whole you know it just makes it difficult to communicate so my mission I was always interested to see if we could build kind of standard things, synthesizers hadn't quite started yet, but how do you make something... Spring reverbs were happening, Leslie's were happening, so how do you create these interesting sounds in some way that isn't so destructive, because we were playing it beyond their means at that time. We were pushing the envelope of level, especially.
0: Well, and that that was the time. So, Steve Miller, you go down to Monterey Pop, which in a weekend after this, you'll be back again, I imagine, yeah. 50 <laughs> years later. Um, what? Uh, a couple of things there. One, there's a seminal moment in culture and certainly Bay Area attention. And, and um, two, it's sort of, what was your assessment of the sound reinforcement? I mean, this is something you bring there and you see, and this is a big festival, a lot of focus. Um, did it sound good?
2: <laughs> I'm very mono focused. I, mean, I had one job, which is to get Steve's stuff on stage to work. He had. Uh, uh, I was doing both Lonnie, the bass, and I was doing this stuff for Steve. Uh, the actually the sound system, I think, was McCune's. I remember uh, an Abe did it from what I've heard. But I actually didn't go out in the audience much, to be honest with you. When you're doing sound for on stage it's it's uh it becomes the whole world to kind of uh like steve pointed out in his interview i guess i just showed up that day with all the stuff i mean i I forgot (laughs) he kept saying where are you john where are you john how is this going to happen it'll happen it'll happen so i came the day of the performance for him and start setting up on stage. And some of the tubes had fallen out of the amplifier. So, of course, things weren't working right away, you know, because they got shipped. Or we don't know if someone took them out or if they, you know, to ship them or whatever it is. But there was that kind of on-stage scramble to get this thing going, right, with it not working. And so that kind of, like, takes away from wanting to go out in the audience and enjoy this thing. And uh, so you kind of miss that part of the event when you do the work. I mean, people, you know, you're either backstage or you're, you're trying to get this thing to happen. So I don't really, I don't think I evaluated other than Ravi Shankar. I did, I had nothing to do with that when he
1: did that. So I went out there
0: to listen to that. What, but was, that's... what was your experience of Monterey Pop? Helen, you know, I, I didn't work. go to, oh, you didn't Pop? Go to my, no. Monterey Pop. No, no. John went. scramble scrambled around on the stage. Oh, yeah,
1: well. <laughs> I didn't go, so I didn't experience it. So I'll be experiencing it for the first yeah. time uh, yeah. fifty years later. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I stayed we'll, back in Berkeley.
0: So but in terms of I mean in terms of the influence of this company, the company's founded what, twelve years later, nineteen seventy nine. But obviously and John, you'd gone out to Switzerland in the meantime and done a lot of research and, and such and um, started to think about sound in all its forms, theatrical. But what did Monterey Pop sort of mean in terms of your direction? Did it mean you're, you've become a problem solver now? What is it? Well,
2: I, I really learned from Monterey Pop was the fact that how to kind of keep this equipment alive long enough to even make it through the performance, let alone multiple performance. So because all the stuff we were doing from hi-fi was not designed for this kind of power level. And it's one thing to have a living room, which is, you know, a, a confined space. Another thing to be outside trying to do this. I mean, it's a whole new demand on the equipment to get that sound into the audience. And, and, you know, we just we're realizing we're going to have to make new parts for this. It's kind of like uh, building, uh, it's like when they want, like if you're a car company, you want to go racing. This is a different problem than driving around the streets. And it's a whole new technology you develop. And that became instantly in my mind where I was working. Uh, Hi-Fi store didn't want to spend the money to develop this, so it became how do you how do you find people that want to develop this? The h- companies that we talked to, like Altec and JBL, weren't interested in this world. They just thought it would go away, and they just thought it was a fad, and you know no one would pay any attention to this. So no one would help us build things for this or make anything special. They weren't interested in it, you know. So that became like how are we going to do this? How how are we going to make this stuff? And that took um, time because. Uh, it took, that's why we started to think about doing research and going to Switzerland and try to figure out how we're going to make this work how are we going to find people that will make speakers for us to do this transducers, little, you know, woofers and things that would last. I mean, it did stuff with, in that time, uh, talking with the Grateful Dead on and off. I mean, going back and forth trying to, um, you know, they were trying to do the same thing, create the wall of sound. And and we were participating and helping them figure out how I made the piano cluster for them. If you look at the picture of the wall of sound, you'll see this big dome-shaped thing with lots of speakers in it. That's my design, to try and get the sound to disperse more evenly rather than the columns, things like that. And testing at the same time, how could we get, and that would give us more power. We had 60 drivers now in the thing. How to get the power? Up with you know things, so I were starting to experiment with everything at that time to try and see could we do these shows in this arena. The Grateful Dead also wanted it to be hi-fi. Uh, that's why they let people record because they wanted to uh, have the people tra- you know use the music and give it to each other and, and share the experience. Well, it's one thing to be at a live performance that sounds you know okay. It's another thing to listen to it later and realize wow this was. How do you make that live performance good enough? So when they take it home and listen to it again, it's worth keeping, it's worth doing. So that was putting pressure on us, how to do that. And you made,
0: big, uh, made really big speakers back Yeah, then, right? <laughs> really started to make
2: stuff, you know, to to make it so that we could fill an arena and have it not clip any of the amplifiers. We had people watching the amplifiers during the show to make sure that they never got clipped, you know, because we didn't have any monitoring for that. And that became obviously we we're gonna need monitoring so that we don't have to have dedicated people on the stage watching the meters on the amplifiers to make sure that didn't happen. So that led to we were gonna need some kind of communication to look at stuff. And so it all all was coming together all through the seventies and you thinking it,
0: about network control back yeah, then. Yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah. No, because <laughs> Not bad. It, it is network control with humans, yeah. it's just expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and yeah. like uh so we started so we started right away starting to develop uh, uh, robustness and we, we did another show with Steve Miller. With the remember, it's San Jose in that with, mm-hmm. uh, with farm workers, yeah, where it was going to be and Joan Baez and Steve Miller, which I both uh, volunteered to the farm workers that you know, if, if you call them, they might do this, you know, and you know, kind of like have something in between the uh, but that was a 10,000 seat stadium that we're starting to do, you know. So uh, these were the big time. things,
0: big, time, yeah,
2: big yeah. stuff. I mean, it have to be clear voice so they can the farmers could talk, you know, see V could get his message across, and then have the bands come on and play. This is this was. I mean, we we're just pushing the envelopes. Every I had people come from the manufacturers to try and see if I could encourage them to help us with these events, and all they do is you bring someone that's been doing hi-fi. And, and you bring them into a stadium and all they do is they just stare like they've been hit with a club really like a oh my god <laughs> I brought people from JBL up, and they just go they go like they realize they're like they're in space or something. this is a whole new world of I mean, it's like they're not uh, it doesn't help When I started to realize it doesn't help to bring them there because they just get overwhelmed. You know, this is way beyond.
0: easy. Uh, easy. What uh, this time, 67 until the formation of the company, John, you know, there's technology going on with um, sort of on an individual basis, I would say, but you know, working, what is, where, what are you doing at this time? What do you, what do you?
1: Um, well, yeah. I was, um, I guess in the late 60s, um, seven, well, our first child was born in 1970. So I was 70. raising our kids. Okay. Thank yeah. So, our first child in 1970, second child in 1974, and uh, then we went, and we were in Switzerland, um, which was fabulous. And uh, basically supporting John the best I could while raising
0: family. But one of the one of the things I want to get at is that over the over these fifty years and into the formation of the company, it's it's almost a merging of two perfect uh, you know personalities and talents and skill sets, which isn't normal in a marriage or in a partnership, or in a business. It's hard to do in any one of them. Um, Are you looking at this industry at this time? I mean, you're observing it in this, but what are you starting to think sort of in Switzerland, say, and by the the time you formed the company?
1: Yeah. I mean, early on, I realized that John had a passion. John had a dream. And so any way that I could help support him in that dream um, was always at the forefront of what I was thinking about. So even at the beginning when we were together, it was all about what he was doing with Steve Miller. It was Monterey pop. And then it was Switzerland. And um, being. Well, in between that, it was working at McCune's. Uh, Because right at, well, let's see, 1970, we had our first child, and we also started our only other business that we ever had, which was a very short-lived business. It was um, Glyph, Glyph, and that was 1970, and we ran it for about a year. We had one sale to Pepperland, but it was a seminal moment for us because at Pepperland, um, John had the opportunity to create a quadraphonic sound system with these amazing horns that we developed, and I, why, why I, helped. I helped. I helped with the mathematics of how that horn was created, and we didn't have computers, so we did it all on little calculators <laughs> and little handheld calculators, um, and so. At Pepperland, at San Rafael, I mean, he had the opportunity to work with, you know, Zappa and with Joan Baez Pink and with all Floyd of Pink came. Floyd, and so there were all these things ben. going on between the time that we yeah first met and the time that we started the business, and it all was a, tra- a trajectory for John in terms of how to continue doing what he wanted to do.
0: Because one of the things, I mean, John, John I loved your Tech Awards Hall of Fame speech from a couple of years ago, John. One of the things you said, and it was very very honest. I, if it's up. To me, I'd be on an island with a fence. You even mentioned barbed wire, I think, in the speech, <laughs> and a telephone line. But Helen makes this all work. When did you discover those roles that, like, Helen can be the face in the business and and make this all grow? And you.
2: AES you shows. I'd wonder why these people were hanging around the booth and Helen would make relationships with them. They wound up being <laughs> really good dealers. My my first is to reject it, you know, kind of like, uh, I, I'm very, like I said, I'm very mono focused. I mean, you know, it's like, when we did Pepperland, it was a quadraphonic high amped hi-fi system, you know, with eight-foot subwoofers, you know, so that we, you know, it was those were all horn experiments to prove how horns worked. And, you know, I'm not a great believer in things that are written, so I like to test everything, verify everything. I don't want to spend 20 years to find out that someone miss, was wrong in the textbook or whatever, so I'd like to build on solid foundation, which just generally means we measure it, but... Jean Baez loved the system, the quadraphonic system. Zappa did not like it. Uh, He said it's way too, nothing like they're used to, a completely sound like they get out of their little system in the hotel that he had that just has a whole sound to it. This thing was like hi-fi, which was not what he was prepared for. And I said, well, what do you want? And he says, well, I like the little hotel system, but we can't do the room. And uh, all the guys were sitting on the stage looking miserable. And I go, "Well, why don't you bring the high fo- that thing in, whatever it is, and sit on the stage? and I'll just mic it. I don't care, you know." And they were so sort of perked up, did that. We got a show. Of course, we got a review from somebody that said it sounded like a hotel PA system. <laughs> so you have to make your choices in this industry. Like, who do you want to please? You know, reviewers are going to have one way of looking at, it. and then you have the musicians and audience, and they're the ones that really I care about. You know, and then. The rest is is hard because you have to. There's a business relationship to this. There's you have to think about money. You have to think about inventory. You have to think about how to price things. None of those things. I had any, Helen did all of that.
0: Uh, I had the more practical sense. Yeah. <laughs> I was
1: doing the more practical things, and I, I realized early on that that was something that I could contribute. So listening to John, being able to interpret. Some of the things that he wanted, so in a non-technical way, but also the practical end of of things. And um, as we um, as we started the business, that was clearly the the area that needed attention because John could create things, but yeah, who were the customers? How to build the relationships? How to follow up? How to communicate? How to have accounting systems and inventory systems and all that? How to
0: put that infrastructure into place you two figured all that out as you went it as we went like, as <laughs> we went. learned it as oh, we went well i love yeah. it because some of it um in in the development of products i mean so when you say the development some of these are really long-term projects you know a family of speakers doesn't it's not a six-month plan yeah. or anything and some of it is a response but sort of from the beginning john um there's been a response to need, you know, whether and it sort of seems to come from an individual, whether it's Steve Miller, Jefferson Airplane, whether Grateful Dead, and then some of your own dismay at the state of sound, and you have to go develop a product because you can't. How, where do these? Uh, how does that sort of development well, for, come? For
2: example, we're in Switzerland, and we're, we want to build. Um, after we worked in the institute, and then closed down. Uh, for lack of money or whatever, how these things come and go, right? Then I got another job working with an engineer, and one of the engineers that worked with me in the lab, uh, he was working in another company building disco systems, and we started a search to, I wanted to find out were there any drivers, little like 15-inch or 12-inch drivers on the plant, that actually, what we call linear, worked with low-out distortion because no one had was able to figure out how to make this work from say a theoretical point of view. So they're all like distorted, everything. And um, the idea was is to set up a lab and we just measure every speaker in the world, starting with Philips and we JBL, everyone that made speakers, we just set up a lab and started to measure them. Find if we could find, say, just by stumble across it someone, if we can't figure out how to do it directly through physics, then you can try it indirectly, like seeing if someone stumbled across it. This is risky because it'd be like trying to build a helicopter from a hardware store. Just, you know, the odds that you might not have them, it may not happen. It may be possible in your brain that it could happen, but you may not be able to find the parts to do it. Or no one stumbled across how to build it. So, uh, But we spent about almost a year doing this, right, measuring speakers. And at the very last minute, we found one that was made in Italy that uh, was made for, actually was made for a car radio, which happened to be Linear. And so we visited them, got them to build more, and we started to build a studio monitor around this speaker, you know, with a 12 inch for that, and then we finished it up and brought it to the United States, the first year of our new company, Meyer Sound, and did an AES demo in Berkeley, uh, and the the bear from Stanley came by, right, and heard it and said, "This is the kind we need this for the Jefferson Starship." I said, "It's a studio monitor, it's not a." Pa monitor speaker. He says that's what did going to make. We can set it on the side. We can, you know we'll prop it up with wood. And I go
0: so on fine.
2: So we take it out and we do it for the starship, and we go to the show, and it's just very 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 clear. This is where we one of the first thing is that. Some of the band liked it because you could hear all the voices independently. Some of them wanted it merged like some of the other monitors they used to use were kind of all combined together. I said, we can figure all that out. So we started to build that as a stage monitor in something that was a box that would be sit on the stage and wouldn't fall over every time you touched it because it was a square rectangular thing, but a stage monitor and upped its power because they weren't loud enough. The monitor was only able to do like 110 And we needed 120, but it still had to be small, like Cantner said. He wanted to still be able to see the audience. He didn't want this big thing in front of him. So still, the profile came from Cantner, you know, and uh, the technology came from this Swiss thing we started plus adding about 10 times more power to it so they could come have all their instruments they wanted to have drums come into this thing and and the beat frequencies and everything else was mic'd in here and they want to be able to come to the mic and go one two three four and hear it right well this is like so we built a processor to 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 work on this thing and so we came out with the ultra monitor this is how it evolved to do a specific thing and this was the most powerful little monitor on the planet I was And then we had one side flat so we could use it as a PA speaker. So it had a tilted side for one side and PA in the other side. And Abe, Abe came out from knowing him from McCunes from New York and heard about it and said, I want to use that for, you need to make a PA speaker out of that. And I go, it is a PA speaker. And he goes, you can't make a stage monitor into a PA speaker. It has to be a PA speaker. And I go, fine. So I, we, we took the parts and we made a triangle box. We, we redid the box. I kept the same electronics, same everything else and just read fitted the box with a, a, tra, a trapezoid box. That's where it came from. And that went to New York and became, this thing was powerful and small. And they loved it. It became an instant hit in New York. The big problem we had is with about 10 times more money than uh, uh, that they were used to spending. They're used to spending that money on a great big thing that, weighed, that was you know 10 feet by 10 feet. But this little tiny thing that cost as much money made the Broadway people that had to buy it a little... Testy,
0: <laughs>
2: but one of the things you learn is when it gets specified, they buy it anyway.
0: What, what was, what was your response? Because Broadway was still not shows. Not every show was amplified at that time. No, no it's not true. at all. It's no. true.
1: I mean, Abe Jacob, uh, our dear friend and collaborator with John on the, um, you know, UPA, started using the UPA, and um, he really started doing sound design on Broadway. He was like the father of sound design, and because of that, we got our start doing. Broadway shows. Yeah. So starting in nineteen eighty one, I think. We for a while there we pretty much had ninety nine percent of the shows on Broadway with our UPA. And West End too. We and pretty, West End, yeah, in London. It was the only thing um, that existed. Because we were really like the only small, powerful system that worked really well. You could hide the speakers in the sets, you could, mm. you know, keep it was really flexible and uh, and it still is. I mean they're still used on Broadway. Yeah, they it lasted this whole pretty time. Incredible, you know? yeah. But um, But yeah, uh, it was. And so, yeah, for that, it was very exciting because in addition to listening to pop music, when I was growing up, I listened to Broadway shows. So, all these Broadway shows that we got to work on were just so exciting. And it just felt really fantastic. We've created
0: this lineage then, too. And now you can go to Cirque in Las Vegas, and I think you had 4,500 speakers in one show or something. You you had them in the chairs. I mean, this this evolution has. So, let me ask you I mean, in terms of product development, you see sound reinforcement for concerts, and you have theater now. Are you starting to think about sound in spaces? Like John, my theories apply to spaces. I mean, and is that sort of like, give me a market, I'll fill it. No, no. Well, yes and no. Yes and I
2: saw a demonstration when we were in Switzerland at the at the lab. There was Phillips was doing a demonstration about how to create uh, a cathedral sound in a in a rectangular room, and so we were all rushed over to Eindhoven to see this thing, uh, and it was like. 300 speakers with 150 microphones and probably maybe 15 tape recorders in the back of the room, all with, all in loops with multiple heads for the delay. So there were like 15 heads on every single loop. And, they, um, and then electronics was twist all tube stuff and solid state stuff. And uh, so for about 10 minutes, you could hear kind of a dome in this room before tape loops started to break and things like that. But at least it could prove the concept that this could work you know it just needed a lot of uh, uh, it was they don't so they didn't sell any of those systems you know because they were like a million dollars and that was a lot of money then uh, huge it was like 10 times or 20 times more than it is today so those things at that time was you know it was like spending 20 40 million dollars in today's money you know so no one was interested in doing that but it gave me the idea that this is possible now we have to figure out a practical way to do something last longer than 10 minutes. And that doesn't come right away. You have to kind of figure out what it is that you're trying to solve. And computing to move this to computing power and still do it in that kind of what we call brute force way would be a whole row of cray computers, which can be forty or fifty million dollars worth of computers. So you figure out um, there's no easy way to do this. And then so you kind of wait for the technology to come along. And so you do other things in the meantime, but you build you, but you know what you need. So I always think long term. So every little speaker, the little speakers we were building, for train stations, this was going to be an element for a constellation in the future. It's going to be a little linear speaker. And so everything you make, you make for these future projects. So you don't have to do it all at once. So by the time we got the computing processing out of game computers, the chips, and when they became available for math processor chips that they use in game computers, these things can do a trillion calculations which would be like, uh, you know, put 10 of those together and you have a, a supercomputer, you know? So suddenly now it becomes a few thousand dollars rather than millions of dollars. And so that opens up the door of doing it as a real room. And so that was our start to experiment with there's various patents, like there were some people in New Zealand that had a patent on some of the algorithms. So you start to, and then LCS in Canada was doing some of the work. So you, you start to think, well, let's get these people together. But if we get LCS down here, uh, then we could have that part of the technology. You start to put a team together. I don't buy companies, we buy, we get relationships with people that can help, right? I mean, not, we're not in a quest to own 50 companies, we're in a quest to do this project. And each thing, This is a lot of work to do these things. And that led toward uh, putting here in this room we're in a constellation system so we could start to demonstrate the technology. There are other people that were working on this, but they did it, since it was expensive, they did it in what we call a different path, which would mean like all the walls were moving all the time to make it stable. But the question, make it so it didn't go into feedback and things like that. And then, But no one liked these systems. And so the the argument was all along is that people didn't like these reverberation systems because they're prejudiced. I said, well, I've never, all the work I've ever done be a musician, I never found them prejudiced. I found the fact that I have to be heard, you know, and, and I think that goes way back to classic times when, when they made the violins more powerful and they added more, um, they strengthened the bows and things, and they strengthened the necks to make it louder. It's like they want to be heard. They changed the halls. Yeah, they did they everything. Be, so, yeah. like, maybe this is not prejudice. Maybe they just don't like it. Maybe the moving walls is a bad idea. You know, maybe what we ought to do is is do this, mimic a real room, exactly the way a real room is. So I had Roger, before we did this, with Roger, our PhD from Penn State, we set him up and went around the world measuring concert halls with starting pistols and things like that. So we'd have our own map of concert halls that are measured from multiple places in the concert hall, from, you know, so not just from the stage, but everywhere. So we'd have a library of rooms so we could start to see could we duplicate a room with all this technology that's how it kind of evolves then you bring someone down an objective group of people like from the university not the scientists but the musicians and have them play in the space and see happening. if they, and they like it and that's how these things happen they don't happen they're not like Everyone thinks that like they're not visions, Break, you know. Yeah. They're they're not like they're not the way movies portray this stuff because they're really it's it's nine tenths hard work. I think I don't know who said that. Probably Edison. I don't know one of those someone that actually does something. It's a huge amount of work. I thought it was Woody Allen. Uh, well, he no. <laughs> <said>. <laughs>
0: but it's that saying anyone that does anything hard realizes it's mostly a lot of work. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, Constellation began back with a stage monitor. That's, that's very just because how, it leads into the next question. With such long term planning and such short term needs, sometimes building a company in 79, the first years are tough, right? Short term needs, long term plan. How, how do you two interact in deciding, say, Let's do Leo. Let's do this. How? <laughs> That's a good the question. Business and technology. That's how a does good that question. work? I
1: mean, John has ideas that he doesn't even tell everyone in terms of where it's going because he has such a long-range vision. He can't even explain to most of us what he's doing now that is going to be applied, you know, five, ten years from now. But he knows where it's going. I see more of the short term. I, I'm i more of the yes person in the company. If someone comes to us and says they have a project and they look at our array of speakers and they decide that maybe they want to try something that our speakers can't accomplish, could we make something for them? I'll go to John and I'll say, can the engineering group really, you know, is this something we can do? Because I like to say yes, I like to. And, and then John will go, Oh no, it's a lot of work. And then I say, But you know, it could be really interesting. And so there's this back and forth thing that we do. And I'd say that uh, over the years, there's been, I mean, I can point to any number of our products that were inspired by a project that someone brought to us, said they needed something specific, and we created it for them. And then that became part of our line of products. And um, yeah, so it's kind of a back and yeah, forth. Uh, say? Get, we get things
2: from customers that, It really isn't like
1: new technology, but it's got
2: to fit into the wall. And the wall is only like six inches deep, you know. So that's a huge project to do and to make it the quality that we like to make it. So it's a lot of work, but it isn't like new in the sense that like Constellation, which is all new. Constellation you know? is, yeah, right. Yeah. So, but new. we do those. It's like when I made the, the PA speaker for Abe, I was not happy about it having to make a, a trapezoid box. I already thought I had a solution, but I don't fight with those things because doing? I'm not I'm the glad one. Glad you made the trapezoid box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because. I don't want want to second guess why they want that. It's too much trouble. I don't want to have to learn all the reasons. I mean, I trust him that, 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 you know, if he says he's not going to be able to sell a stage monitor for PA, I'm not going to try and second guess that. He wouldn't say that if he, you know, he knows what this is going to be, right? We're going to have to kind of something that seems, I mean, we have, we just have, people have, it's like if you have a pickup truck, it's hard to get people to want to go around and pick them up for dinner. I mean, we just get, things to have a fit, right? I mean, there's just a way that you have to kind of accept that,
0: you know, the... Well, you live a classic battle between science and commerce. I mean, you live it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's
1: our world.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, let's jump ahead then. I would like to go to some events and milestones because as part of your, um, wonderful website, you have a, a one, I love your timeline as it goes through. It includes your grandchildren. It includes all this, which to me indicates family is very important. Um, Absolutely. Extended fire, extended. Absolutely. So let's um, let's start with some of these milestones. For instance, what what were the big products? I mean, what, what sort of like these launches, how they come about? What's a product launch mean to this company?
1: I mean, a product launch is a really important part of what we do because it's, it, it takes the product that John and the whole engineering team have created and it puts it out there. It's, it tells the story. It's like, what does this product do? How is it going to, how is it going to work for you? What is it going to mean? How does it fit with all the rest of our products. And and this is something we look at all the time. When we come out with a new product, we want to make sure it fits with everything else that we're doing and that it's part of a a system. And ultimately, it's part of an experience that we are trying to create for everyone and that we want our customers to be able to experience. So that um, you know, launching it is, I mean, it's interesting. One of the hardest things we do when we launch a product is give the product a name. You you wouldn't even believe the <laughs> things we go through, the hoops we go through, and all the discussions we have about what the name of the product is. And then internally in the cus, in the company, we have a, um, a code name. We start with that code name, and then when we change it, our engineering group has to like change all the documentation. So there's all this tension between these internal groups of when we're going to have a name and how it's going to be done. And one of the things we tried early on is naming products after our grandkids, because as you said, we, family is important, and... Uh, uh, we have a fourth grandchild that has does not have a product named after her yet, but hopefully will one day soon. Um, but it's been fun to be able to name the products after the grandkids. And it's uh, all part of the launch, part of the story we tell.
2: One, one idea that Disney told me one time was uh, that they see marketing, engineers come up, unless they gave an example, like say they came up with a, a, a rear view mirror on the side of your car that you could change with a little dial, how, how bright the car behind you was or something like that. Or you could make it, or you could set it out. They would create this thing, really nice little gadget thing. And they come to marketing and explain the complexity. And they, they go through all the stuff. Marketing listens to all of that. But what marketing is really trying to figure out is how to present, the, not technology, but how to present it in a way that most people will understand what it means. Without the engineers want to explain what they've done so they explain it in a very elaborate complicated way they show all the how the critical crystal works and how this and there and marketing has to digest that into what will most people be interested in hearing about so they layer it in other words they'll say well maybe that should be a technical paper and maybe we could show it this way and and because they're the ones that are trying to get the sales to figure out how to work with it so marketing is that in that middle role of not um not trying to you know, make it wrong or anything like that, but how to kind of create its the, use, it, its, it's use. practical yeah. use. Yeah. So, and and that's the best of marketing.
0: And one of the others I really um, have appreciated about Meyer Sound over the years is your association with some either whether it's a festival, an event, uh, a performance, um, yeah, whether it's Montreux, whether it's Cirque, you get with the organization Monterey Pop. Even coming coming around here, um, what do these mean as a company? These type of partnerships on, uh, or say, developing relationship with a Cirque over the year, or or uh, or a Montreux. I mean. I- to me, having these relationships
1: with these organizations is is really important because it not only brings us into close collaboration with what that festival is doing and how we can help with creating a better experience for everyone at like the festival or with the Cirque shows or with Monterey pop, but it gives us an opportunity to try new things. So that's one of the things we've done with Monterey jazz over the years is to bring all of our newest product to those shows where we can really try stuff out. We bring our tech people and, They have a chance to experience and experiment with stuff. And so it's kind of a a laboratory for us. And and that is really helpful, and, and it's a it's a win win because we get to try things out, we get to bring our customers, our technical group gets to experience, experience things, and the festival gets the very latest equipment, so they get the you know the, the advantage of really being on the cutting in edge. That
0: relationship though, you need the trust. I mean, yeah. not not every festival wants to introduce new equipment. No, that's not true. That. It is a trust <laughs> thing. You're right. It, it You're is right. A trust. Well, it's, it's also a, a familial relationship. Montrose over thirty years now. It think, is. It is. Either.
1: Yeah, and of course the family. Um, artistic director of Montreux passed away a few years ago, so there's a new director. And then it sort of changes, you know, things um, kind of evolve into what that director wants to see in the festival, but it's all a matter of trust. And and so much of what we do is based on the, the things that we've done over the years, people trust that we're going to continue doing that, and, and we have vowed that we will. So it's important to us.
0: And then some of the other milestones, like, I, I, I don't, you don't buy companies up. You're not. Um, I'm, sure you've been, I'm sure people have tried to buy you over the years. That's true. <laughs> I would believe that. Um, so the acquisition of LCS, sort of, um, one, John, it fits into a long-term plan. Um, it also brings together some of your ideas of integration and control over the years. And um, it, can you talk to me about this as a milestone in terms of bringing a lot of your ideas together? I guess, and not necessarily LCS, the company, but the idea of LCS to control integration, working with people in order to, to, we've entered an installation market now. We've entered a- well,
2: In a way it's practical because even though we had built things like SIM analyzers and we even won R&D 100 awards for it, which is amazing, uh, rarely ever happens. I think there's been very few audio awards ever done with R&D 100s. I think Ampex got one and stuff, but they're very, very rare given to us, mostly science, national science and you know labs and things like that however if we wanted to go into digital processing in audio people kind of look at you like is this your expertise you know so if you try to do something that's not your expertise people become suspicious so it's easier to link up with someone that has that reputation then it's just more efficient and they have their reputation for one thing which means you don't have to build it and at the same time um you can then collaborate, and it saves all of that trying to prove that we have the right to do this. I mean, it's like when people buy consoles; they they have a tendency to gravitate people that make consoles. Even if they if someone buys them up and gets the name, people would rather buy the name from that new company than start completely from scratch. And then that company, if they completely destroy the name, then it then eventually they'll say, "Well, that's no good anymore because they've ruined it." But like, the name really matters, you know, and and so. What one of the nice things with LCS is we had a project together to do. There's no, we didn't have any reason to cheap it out when we bought whatever they were doing, but it would help us with uh, selling uh, sophisticated stuff like constellation and things like that. You know, so it gives you a, it's a, an entry into a market that would be a lot more difficult if you have to kind of. There's always, I mean, how many battles do you want to fight? Is what you're really looking at, you know, in the marketplace out there. How, many, how much do you want to spend money? Convincing people you have a right to do this when this is a no brainer. Mm. You know, kind Well, of you've thing.
0: done it in the installation world. Now you're doing it in the cinema market. You've done it a couple of yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> is it going in there? Um, let's, let's turn to some people because I can see um, this is uh, having been in Berkeley since 1988 and seeing the whole Meyer family grow over the years, and I many of your employees over the years. It's, um, it has that feel of a family. It, and I don't say that lightly, um, but that family extends out into the outside world. Certainly you rely on creative people so if I could I'd like to do a small column response I once did this with Walter Merch about his films and just give me a sentence or two when I say a name and just each of you if you'd say like what they either what they mean or what they meant to the company um, so if we're gonna let's start with a couple of musicians Steve Miller uh, Start out with the, the founder what does he mean
1: Steve is um, to me when I think of Steve I think of him um, the continuity of Steve from the very beginning when we first knew him in 1967, he has stayed true to his form of music and he's brilliant. And he's also a brilliant businessman. I mean, when we've talked to him about the way he's thought about growing his music business. is very impressive. I'm very impressed with Steve.
2: Oh, yeah. he, he write When I write letters, if I want to do something like release a record or we're thinking about doing some stuff. You'll get pages of information back from Steve about how the industry works. You won't just get a sentence or two. You just get like a whole book on what you need to consider, right? And it takes you weeks to digest what he just tells you because he gives you a complete core dump of what you need to know about. It saves you a lot of grief, and this ind- all these industries are complex, you know. And they're, you know, the whole each one you want to enter into, a like movie world, cinema world. I mean, they generally like the cinema world. They didn't know anything about the fact that what we were doing
0: in the PA world.
2: They paid, They made. Yeah, but we're talking about Steve. So. Yeah, I know. So.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he's the godson of Les Paul, so he knows. That's the bigger, right. You know, That's busy. right. Um, Sunday night, I used the Meyer Sound tickets for Dead and Company, The Grateful Dead. What have What have they meant to the company? Mm-hmm.
1: A he, the Grateful Dead have meant a huge amount to us. I mean, we started working with them right from the beginning, and they gave us so many opportunities to try out all these wild and crazy ideas that John had. Working with Don, Howard, um, working with all the band members. I mean, they've all been very, very open and um, willing to let us try things oh. because they they really do want the very best. I mean, they're kind of a unique band in many ways. Yeah, you
2: know? yeah, anybody that would, I mean, in the very beginning, you know, I come from, I look for science. And so in space that was starting to come along, you, you, you can bring signals back, you encode them, and then you receive them for a long time, and you pull that out of all the noise that happened on the way. Uh, and so I wanted to try this technique with the band. In other words, we put this coded signal at very low level into the music, and then we recover it over time. Then we could get like a frequency response of how the audience changed the room. Uh, but what we found out after a while through the hard way, like every time at first we could run this thing for like a half an hour and no one seemed to notice. I mean, it was really low level, like down the noise level, shouldn't have been able to hear it, but they started to tune into it. And every time we turned on, they'd all yell and scream until we turned it off. And I go, I don't know to this day how they figured it out, but they did and they objected. So we had to find another way. That's how you learn, you know, and then we started to use music, as the source, With, you know, started to think about, we got to find a new way of doing this. So that's how you really, you, without an opportunity, we might have never, you need to try these things out in in the world, you know, these ideas sound wonderful in theory, and, you know, but they just don't necessarily always work the way well, you imagine. Well,
0: that's the practical side, John. There's also a famous picture of you from the late 70s in the back of a Toyota lifting a speaker out at a Grateful Dead show that I've seen before, so you're there on site, too. Um, Metallica.
1: Metallica is a great band, and working with them is really exciting because, again, they've had continuity over all the years, and they have created this amazing fan base that's pretty wild. The first time I went to a Metallica concert it was not so long ago, and I didn't know what, I, what to expect, and I was blown away. I loved it. Well, loved power.
0: it. The power of this company the is about power. power
1: <laughs> the power, the Just the way they reach their audience and their care that they put into the work they do—it's really, really impressive. It's
2: not what you imagine from thinking that it's heavy metal compared to when you go there. You know, you get—they're so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And and actually, they try out our. They started with we, we. We showed them we built some speakers to go down to 14 cycles. We did this for NASA. And we played it for them. And they got really interested. And now they're touring with it. And and uh, they really they, do. They want
1: to create new, powerful yeah. sounds. Yeah. they They're always it's thinking good. about their audience, too. They want to bring they're something. they're pushing the envelope. They yeah. want to keep doing more. And that's and and
0: fun more, to work with people great. to do that. Let's go to one of the most powerful voices in the world, then, Celine.
1: Selene, well, she's been amazing because, again, working with her and working with her team, working with the, the people from Solatech, um, they want to create the very purest and best sound possible, both on her recordings and live sound. And the concerts we've gone to for her are just exquisite. I mean, you feel like she is singing right to you, right to you personally. And it's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, we yeah. developed a new processor called Galaxy, which is... Signal noise ratio, we're pushing the envelope all the time. And it's like up to 127 dB dynamic range, which puts it almost 22 dB uh, in terms of bits, which is just an amazing accomplishment in technology. Does anyone notice? I don't, you know, that's what you don't really know. And they're, they just emailed us and said, it's the whole new processors brought us, They got us come. We got to come to the show when we're in Europe because it's just amazing. So they hear these things that we suspect from an engineering point of view matter. But it's hard to prove because it's, you won't, you know, there's these things, uh, it's been the fight ever since I've been in this business. People say, oh, it's just overkill. No one will hear that. that. Everyone loves to say that. But that's never been proven. I mean, I remember reading articles in, in the magazines a long time ago that all we need is a million pixels and we'd be done. What happened to that argument? You know, I mean, it's like everyone is always willing to co- write a whole article and put it in Scientific America or whatever that a million pixels and we'll have solved the problem. Well, we're up to a lot more than that, I noticed. And, we, you know, it's not solved, you know. So I think, you know, it's nice to work with people that,
0: that appreciate that that if this matters. It's worth trying, rather than up to today. Ed Sheeran, Justin Bieber. I mean, these oh, people going cool? out. Your current is, current Yeah, can be.
1: Lucas Gray, and these young artists yeah. are. They're trying a whole bunch of new things, and we're thrilled that we've got technology that they like to use, and they're using it in different ways, yeah. which is fabulous. Well, you can
0: see Ed Sheeran in Wembley Stadium. I mean, that's oh no, yes. getting a lot of sound out of. Uh, that's right. <laughs> of, uh, that's guitar. right.
1: Yeah, it was fabulous.
0: Um, the industry. I mean, I'd like to... We're sitting in the Don Pearson Theater. There's there's a reason he's named Don Pearson. Could you please tell me the importance that Don Don played in your, your lives personally and professionally?
1: Well, personally, I mean, we knew Don from the early stages of the company. He literally helped us get off the ground. Um, we were close to him and Fran. We, you know, they're girls. Um, and, you know, throughout the whole um, company history as we grew with The Grateful Dead, Don push the envelope. John and Don worked together. I mean, they weren't always getting along. They didn't agree on everything, which was always interesting. But he was kind of the
2: glue between us and the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Because he's, you know, you need, because working with the bands directly, especially the Grateful Dead, it's difficult, you know, so you need someone to kind of, that's going to manage that all the time. I mean, it's a lot of management work to work with, five creative people you know like that it's just hard you know it's
1: it's a but lot don was them. challenging I, I remember he'd call and he'd want things and i'd kind of like oh my god you know don's on the phone i've got to you know he, gotta say he, yes he, <laughs> yeah i've got to <laughs> say yes absolutely you know but he what he what he was thinking about was always you know the right way to move forward so it was an honor to be able to name our theater after him. And he was part of helping us think about what w- it was going to be. He just didn't live long enough to see it and he's uh, part of finished. That,
0: he's part of that Bay Area scene, that we all, that innovation, that yeah. that spirit that we started this off with. Um, let's go to S- Theater Symphony. I mean, we almost can't overstate the importance of Abe Jacob, sounds like, oh from Monterey Pop to Broadway. That's to, right, that's right. Well, Abe was, has been amazing. It was amazing. Abe told, he, we got a call from
2: uh, Andrew Bruce from England, uh, West End, and said that he wants to buy those UPA speakers. And I said, and Helen says, do you want to demo? He says, no, Abe recommended them. That's good enough for me.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, that tells you the whole story right there, right? I mean, you know, they just bought them because he said you needed them.
0: That's probably, but did he go back to, you said McCune, and then was a the sound designer at Monterey Was he at McCune? Yeah, he yeah, was that at McKeon's. Yeah, that's where I met
2: where him. Met
1: him. That's yeah. Where met. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: So I said I was going to come out with a new speaker. I was building at McCune's that would make buy this time. But He says that's hard to imagine better than what we have with these A7s. And then he and I, entered, and I brought May these speakers. And he goes, "You're right."
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, theater I certainly a passion of both of yours because I know you won me. Um, help the or- local organizations from Berkeley Rap to the San Francisco theaters and such like that. Jonathan Deans, what has he meant? In the, in the, I suppose it's in the legacy of Abe Well,
1: yeah. I mean, Jonathan was at Autograph in London. That's when we first met Jonathan. And, and then he decided to come to the United States, and we encouraged him. And he said he was going to start working with people here. And Jonathan has the unique ability of really uh, being able to talk to the highest level people uh, and explaining the technology. And so he got himself involved in, you know, Broadway shows and the Cirque and um, major projects. We love working with Jonathan he's, and we're actually collaborating with him on a number of different things right now. He's we're very, excited. very,
2: uh, yeah. he sees he's the future. Amazing. I mean, he yeah. just
1: really sees when you're talking about
2: technology, he just sees it, gets it, understands it. Uh, and, and then he can convey it to these business people in a way that I can't. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, he just creates in a, a way that they they want to they want to be part of it.
1: Well, we just saw Jonathan. He's going to be teaching at UC San Diego, which is very exciting. Same time zone. Yeah, yep. <laughs> same time zone. He's he lives there now. He lives in oh. La Jolla and uh, so yeah, it's great. We get to
0: see him well, a lot more. Let's go local because you're both. Berkeley kids. Yep. Uh, the Berkeley Rep. When you, I mean, Broadway's nice, West End's nice. I, I was your guest at American Idiot when Green Day opened wow. it at Berkeley Rep. So tell me the relationship there.
1: Um, I joined the board of Berkeley Rep. I think in 1996. It was the first board I'd ever been invited to join, and I loved it because I didn't know much about regional theater. But we were the only—I was the only board member who had any technical background and actual theater background, because all the other board members were from different types of industries. And and so um, I've been involved with Berkeley Rap all these years, and uh, they're a great organization. And they are—they're st- stretching themselves and putting shows on Broadway. And American Idiot was one of their first musicals. And of course, we had equipped the theater um, so that they could do musicals, yeah. which was fabulous. Because Tony Taconi from the start said they would never do a musical he he said that they will never never, do a musical well hello they're doing musicals all the time now they're just doing Monsoon Wedding they're doing another one next fall and uh, so it's fun working with and, and they're great they're just right down the street and we love Tony and we love Susie and we love everything at Berkeley right?
2: See, see what I know in this industry is never means right now yeah. <laughs> yeah. it means right this moment it's never and yeah. when I first started, I started proposing you could do musicals and all this they actually cringed at the thought but I came from theater and I know how that works it works until you can kind of see maybe they had the wrong idea about it but if we don't equip them and get it ready and get it nice and working rather than speakers as an effect the way theater people think of them, you can't you don't get the opportunity. So I said, you know, so you need to support it in the beginning to get to to realize it when you know that someone comes in and wants to do this thing. And so it's it's how you kind of have to help the
0: whole thing. Um, who am I forgetting? Friends and family that has been just I mean in terms of this fifty years of uh, I
1: mean when I think about 50 years of the relationships and the people here in the Bay Area. I mean, we work with the San Francisco Opera and with Cal Performances and with um, Berkeley Rep and um, Berkeley Symphony. Yeah, that's the Cal Performances. Um, We're doing recordings now. We're working with some artists who've done some amazing things, Um, Stephanie Blythe and Claire Chase. And, um, you know, I think for me what keeps – the excitement there is all these creative people that we get to work with. It's really fantastic. And being able to help them create their visions with our technology, that's what it's all about. And I love doing it.
0: And this year is a very special golden year for the two of you in many ways. Um, and we've seen hints of your plans of going around the world and celebrating with your customers and yep. sort of celebrating the extended family. I mean. Anything we should look forward to? Any big? You're going to Europe. You're going to Beijing. We
1: uh, let's see. We've already been to Mexico City and San Diego and New York and Miami, and we're going to Orlando next week for Infocom, and then we're going to be in Switzerland for the summer, and then we'll be going to Asia and Russia in the fall, and um, in between we'll make little trips here and there, and we have our tie dyed ticket contest in full swing, so we are going to be bringing people to the factory, those people who've entered the contest, who we've selected as people who really shine in their industries. We'll bring them here, give them a, a red carpet treatment and get a chance to meet some of our key customers.
0: Oh, fantastic. And um, one last question, um, because it doesn't sound like you're slowing down, John. I know you have nope. research projects at Berkeley and all <laughs> the uh, universities and you're probably doing some parabolic dome speaker right now or something. Um, <laughs> but I... I you started this whole company off with measurement, John. You once said to me—I mean, when I did a mixed interview with you—that um, you, you, you can't build a product unless you know what you have. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to do that. So I would say—I mean, I, first, first of all, I congratulate you on 50 years of being together. That's no thank you. Um,
1: That's kind of awesome. What's isn't it?
0: Uh, what's what's the measurement of a good marriage over these years? You won't—you uh, do it for your products. How do you judge yourselves?
2: By staying out of each other's department. <laughs> <That's
0: right. laughs>
1: That's absolutely true. I don't get involved in what he designs, and he doesn't get involved in the decisions I make about the people we work with. It's pretty much like that. I mean, yeah. it's not. always Oh, I mean,
2: we discuss things or trade ideas, but uh, like someone asked me that today, and they, I said, "Well, it's really sales. I'm not going to get involved in that, other than my opinion." Get involved a little bit, yeah, a little bit, but not, <laughs> not to the. Point. It's still, your decision, yeah, yeah. you know. And so, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, you kind of like, you kind of like. Uh, I think that's really important is kind of the division of labor. You know, it's kind of like yeah. what we hope our government has is enough strength that it keeps things in departments <laughs> so we don't doesn't burn. <laughs> We're not going to go there. No, I'm just saying that you what what the whole thing was set up to do is to try and protect itself from being kind of a you know, I don't like key man things. I really really like you know how you cr- try to create an organization—not that we have, but the idea we're trying to create—so that it's it has a, a a culture. In other words, the culture. I mean, when you go to companies like Zeiss, or you talk about companies, these old German companies, there's a culture. They know what to do. It doesn't matter if they're public or private or whatever they're doing. They when they create lenses, they're just what they're supposed to be. The microscopes are what, and they've been doing this what for? Hundred years. How do they do that? It's a culture. It's not the CEO that's sitting up there. This is the same kind of on uh, the idea that the 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 one that wrote the Zen and the Motorcycle. Remember the Zen and the, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Making. He wrote that book on yeah. the New York Subway, which no one read, but me, I think. But like, but he talked about the mayor doesn't run the subway. It's a culture. It's like it knows what to do. They know how to fix it. They know how to take care of it. No one says that they're the top and say see that one idea. Sony created this idea. Oh, no, Nikon. I think it was Nikon, where you have this old guy with glasses. There's this lens that's coming down a conveyor belt, and there's a huge pile of glass, and he has a big hammer in his hand. And they say, it'll never get past me if it's not right. <laughs> well, that's one way. You know, that's one thought. I mean, it's, it's a nice thought. But it's not what really makes things strong, because you, what you really want is an organization that knows what to do you know has a they all have the
1: same we're all on the same page about what we're did doing
0: you, did you have any idea that was possible in 1960 no. oh no if
1: anyone had told me in 19 you know 67 that this is what we would be doing 50 years from now i would have said no right. way it wouldn't pay attention no. well, we never paid attention to anyone back then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the time you know but uh, yeah. So
0: I, I don't. No, it's
1: all. It's been amazing. Yeah, truly amazing.
0: Well, I, I really want to thank you on behalf of Mix and New Bay Media and on behalf of the the audiences that listen to Good Sound. <laughs> thank, I really you. Want to thank you. So thank you very much, <laughs> Thank Janet you.
1: Hall. Thank you very much.